Hi, welcome to the Wattage Podcast. Wattage is a personal training gym in the West Loop located in Chicago. I'm your host, Destiny Little, and today we are here with, are you ready? With the owner and founder, ex-rugby player, father to avid bicyclist, no coffee, only tea drinker, Aaron Mannheimer. Hi, Aaron. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Today, we're going to be talking about how this pro rugby player transitioned to be an entrepreneur. And we're going to inside scoop on Aaron and his business. You like the intro? Good. <laughs> I worked hard on that one. It took me a while to get it done. Um, a little backstory about this podcast. Aaron and I had planned on making this podcast for about a month. First time we had it planned in a schedule, I chickened out and I postponed it. And then the second time, Aaron went to, what did you want to do? I had to work out. <laughs> so he postponed it on me. So third time's a charm and we're here today. All right, Aaron, you ready to jump into it? I'm ready. All right, let's get to it. All right, so most people know you have a really impressive rugby background. I want to know, how did you get introduced to rugby? Well... I used to play some pickup soccer in Asheville um, at the university when I was in high school. Okay. Um, I didn't play on the high school team, but I played some pickup. And um, one day I knocked somebody out playing soccer and just generally a little too physical for the sport. Yeah. <clears throat> and there was a professor there, a small guy who actually played for the Asheville Rugby Club. He was a scrum half, and he said, you know, when you get to college – you should look up rugby. Mm. He's like, I think that would be a good sport for you. Wow. I don't know if he was criticizing my soccer, but he just saw <laughs> that I needed something that was a little more aggressive. And then when I was, I played uh, football my junior year of high school, but I honestly, because my dad was a philosopher and my mom was a librarian, I didn't have any brothers or anything. And uh, I, I didn't even know how to play football. Mm. <clears throat> they told me what position I was. I was a slot tackle, and I didn't know what either of those things were. Um, I learned a little bit. I really learned once I got to college and I played Sega football with my roommate. He was a quarterback in high school. He taught me how to play football. But I got to uh, UNC Charlotte as a freshman, and I saw a poster for club rugby, Yeah. and I went to the meeting. I really liked the dynamic of the people there. They were – students from all different backgrounds small guys big guys nerdy guys cool guys fraternity guys all, all sorts uh, and a lot of international players and that really um, that that attracted me and so I went out for the team and in my first game I I split my head open I got 11 <sighs> stitches we went to the hospital and uh, my mom was pretty upset because we it's a $500 deductible on your insurance. Yeah. I got stitched up. <clears throat> the rugby guys came and picked me up and took me to the party. <laughs> and uh, it was the coolest thing. Everybody was like, I was like a rock star at the party because <laughs> I had all the stitches and everything. So, um, and then it, it really kind of dominated my life for the next 15, 16 years after that. Right. That's crazy. So you started in college. You weren't even, I thought, just assuming you started when you were like super young. Well, it's and at that time in the United States, it wasn't uncommon to start playing rugby in college. Now there's youth rugby, there's high school rugby. It's much more um, pervasive across the United States. Right. Um, but at that time, I really had only seen it on TV a couple times, like at midnight on some random Canadian channel. <laughs> right. But... 
so so now it's much easier but back then that that was actually kind of normal just oh. starting up in college got it okay and so you're super accepted and you just kind of fell in love with it i did in fact um i kind of engineered things so that i could play rugby and um I, I went overseas and I went to University of Edinburgh right. in Scotland, played played rugby there where they had five sides. Um, they had 145 guys at tryouts. Mm. So there it was, I was a kid in a candy store. I got to play rugby two games a week. Normally you just play one game a week. But also I would say like to tie it back into personal training and stuff that I wasn't, I wasn't a big gym person. I didn't like working out that much. Yeah. I liked, I liked to do it a little bit, but when I started playing rugby, I started researching online how to train for it. Okay. And I started like putting together programs for myself and for my teammates Yeah. on how to train for rugby. And that's where like it was sort of like a hobby. Mm-hmm. It was like, and it was very self-directed and at one point, you know, I became like the strength and conditioning coach for the rugby team here and for other teams. And that's, that was way before I became a personal trainer. Right. Okay. So you were coming up with these like programs by yourself, for your team. And so you're kind of just like almost like foreshadowing what you're going to be doing like later, which is wild, which brings me to my next. So Huge rugby guy in Scotland, and then you went over to New Zealand. Was that in that timeline, or was that a little bit later? Um, so I got back from Scotland. I graduated from college the next year, yeah. and then I went down to Charlotte to play rugby. Um, I graduated from UNC Asheville. So I went to Charlotte to play rugby because I knew all the guys down there, and I got a job cutting trees down. So I would cut trees down all day, then I would go work out, and then I'd go to rugby practice. Wow. <clears throat> so I was burning about 8,000 calories a day. <laughs> and then at the time, the top league in the country was the Super League, and there wasn't a team in the South. And I had met some guys, and I got recruited by a team out of Washington, D.C. Okay. So I, I drove up to D.C., and I got on somebody's couch for a while I think I slept from three different couches over three different months the first when I first got there. And then um, I got a job with one of the rugby players family's business and then eventually got a job at the Bureau of Labor Statistics randomly. Um, <laughs> a lot of rugby guys actually worked there once one of us got in there. And so I played there for a while and then I really wanted to go to the Mecca of rugby, which is New Zealand. And my coach was from New Zealand and I actually like I just started emailing teams in Auckland and one a, a couple of them were like hey come down here we'll set you up with an apartment wow. get you a car and uh, I had a decent I mean for America and a decent rugby resume like I was a good player and so and then I was also dating someone who played rugby at the same time and I was home on break with her and my mom says why don't you go with Aaron too and so she ended up coming with me. Wow. And she had an Australian passport, so she was able to just come. And so I played rugby there, and I went there in 2000. So I was in Scotland in 1997. Wow. This, this just shows you how old I am. Yeah, I'm um, not even thought about just yet. <laughs> yeah. And so I was there in 2000, and then um, later on, 
a couple of years later in 2003 is when I played professional rugby in Spain. Wow. And then it wasn't until after that that I got into personal training as a business. Got it. Okay. So we see the whole timeline from rugby. And so, I mean, I know a little bit of the story. So how did that inspire you or kind of get you set up to want to be a gym owner? Or how did that start? Well, I was working at Athletico, which is a physical therapy company here in Chicago. And at the time, it wasn't that big. It was about 15 locations. Now it's like over 600. And they were one of the main sponsors for the rugby team. And so when I decided to go into personal training, I initially got a job there as a physical therapy aide. And then I would start to train clients or patients once they finished rehab. Okay. It was like a safe transition because there there's still a lot of steps from rehab to actually getting back to the sport or whatever you're doing. I trained a lot of dancers. And so that became my specialty is this post rehab training. But, um, really it was my sister Cora who kind of talked me into doing it as a job because mm-hmm. I always thought of it as a hobby and I didn't give it much credence. And then, um, but then once I started doing it, it was, I really liked it. And, um, I mean, I remember leaving Athletic all the time and being like, man, if, even if they didn't pay me, I would do this job. Wow. And I, then really, I liked it that much. Year-wise, what year is this? Four. Was when I came back and I started doing this, um, the personal training thing. Okay. And so into that. you were doing that for how long then? So, I've, I mean, I was at Athletico for five years. Got it. And their specialty is physical therapy and... As an aside, they offer personal training at some of their locations. And I just got I just got a little bit too involved in yeah. personal training to the point where it no longer made sense to continue working there. Right. And um, it was it was hard because you think about health insurance and things like that. But once you figure out that you can get some of those things on your own and you have the backing of your clients then I was able to leave and I went and I rented space in a gym and just brought all my clients over. And then, um, I was lucky that I had good relationships with people that would refer people to me. So like Dr. Cole, the bulls doctor at a rush, um, because I did so much post rehab stuff, he would send people to me. Mm. Um, and that really helped grow my business. And then after a while, I went to another gym and rented, and I had actually met with a couple friends, and we had talked about opening up my own space. Yeah. And honestly, when you're just renting space, you could leave for a month and you have no expenses. You could mm-hmm. just not pay. You don't have to pay if you're not there. Your clients go do something else, and then you come back and you can do stuff. So when you open a space, you have continuing expenses, no matter if you have two people or you have a 1,000. So. Right. I was very hesitant to change that lifestyle. Right. Um, at the time, I you know I didn't have any reoccurring bills. I didn't have anything tying me down, and I always thought I was going to move out of Chicago. Mm. So it wasn't until I got, I met my wife, that I really was able to like make the commitment to open my own space. Right. In fact, I got married the month after I opened the gym. Wow. So. <clears throat> that al- that allowed me to lay roots um, and open us sp- and like take the leap because it really is a huge leap. Oh, for sure. Um, 
opening a space. And um, I, I was lucky that my friend uh, Mark Roberts came came back from. He's from Ireland, but he uh, he was in L.A. at the time, and um, I convinced him to come work for me. Yeah. And it was just us for the first two years, which right. is very naive of me. I feel <laughs> like it, had I known what I know now, had I known it back then, I would have done things completely differently. It was right. a very slow grind at the beginning. I mean, literally only two people working here, cleaning everything, doing all the laundry, answering the phones, um, everything. So yeah. um, now I know a little bit more. Right. Which is interesting because I was, I want to take the walk down memory lane. I want to see, I want to be in Aaron's head in 2013. Obviously the, the investment, um, the time, the commitment was holding you back. Um, what else was like, what else was a fear or like something that made you hesitant besides just like the commitment? Were you, what were you afraid of? Well, I mean, financially it's a big investment. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I was afraid that it wouldn't work out. I think I was afraid that like, you know, if you commit to one thing, then you are denying yourself other opportunities. Yeah. And right around that time, um, and, and actually a few years before it, there was some opportunities to go work for some of the Olympic teams and specifically in rugby. Mm-hmm. And I had to turn those down because it didn't make sense if you took those jobs and then you, you got fired or you stopped working there. I would destroy everything that I had built here in Chicago, all my clientele. And so that, you know, you're weighing a lot of things. And, um, I just think at the, in the end, I was like, look, if, if I can pay rent and I can pay the expenses just from my clientele, then I know I can at least bring on one more person and do something similar and then grow from there. Right. And yeah, then you just leap. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Awesome. So let's, I, you understanding that you were doing personal training or something at least similar, um, but doing it in your own gym, was the dynamic different? Did it feel different? Um, did it feel better? How was it when you started to do like your training in your own gym? It was a lot of fun because it was a place where I wanted to be even when I wasn't training people. Um, I would come here on the weekends for hours and work out and watch movies and ride bikes. And, um, I mean, if you think about this gym, it's also like a, I don't want to say man cave, but it's a giant cave of, (laughs) you know, equipment. Yeah. So I really like that part of it. And it was, it was honestly a lot of fun. I mean, and it, it wasn't as, I I don't remember it being as stressful in the beginning because it was just Mark and myself. I think once I started adding more than a couple more, employees or trainers and staff that um there was some added stress just having to deal with whatever was going on in their lives that came up at work right and then you know really trying to get people to be on the same page as you as like buy-in for maintaining the facility and keeping it in really good condition yeah and um so so it was kind of like the honeymoon phase right? Mm-hmm. I didn't have a kid initially. I could work 17 hour days. It's also can be f- referred to as the surge where you're working 60 hours. Um, and it's, but it's a time where you know you have to, and you can do it. Yeah. And I didn't mind doing it at all. It, it just got, it, you know, it's, it's all an evolution, you know? So my position has evolved 
Uh, I don't mop the floors as much, although I really do like mopping floors. <laughs> um, I don't answer the phone. You know, there's things like that that it's not that I don't like to do them, but it's just sort of like now how do I optimize my time? Yeah. And, I mean, I still take business classes trying to figure that out, and I still read books trying to figure that out and always trying to evolve and make adjustments and get better. Yeah. Okay. So let's come back to 2021. Um, tell me your thoughts on how Wattage is now. Is this kind of where you thought you'd be? Is this where you predicted it to be? Tell me, like, are you proud? I'm very proud. I wrote an email a few years before I opened Wattage, and it specifically was like, I just want to create an atmosphere where personal trainers can do their job the best best way possible. And 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 really optimize them, give them the best tools to do it, um, continuing with education all the time and creating sort of a really good group atmosphere. Um, there's no dickheads here. <laughs> Sorry to say that. Um, but th- but it, it's huge. You know, there's there hasn't been any drama. Um, people are like they're just everybody's so kind. And and. Every time I talk to one of my clients who's been training with somebody, they're like, oh, my God, Kane is just the nicest person um, to, about all the staff. Yeah. And, it, and it's just um, it's remarkable to be in that environment. And every once in a while, you know, I'll be like riding the Peloton and looking over and just being like, gosh, it's it's really nice here. And these people are so kind. And um, so I feel very proud about being in that situation that I created and um or or i mean really created by the team here and uh yeah it just blows my mind um and so now it's just about you know making this something that sticks around for the next 20 years right or more yeah i mean especially being from the employee side i think we all say i'll sit with the trainers all the time i'm probably a little bit too much but they always tell me how happy they are here i tell my friends all the time like I have a sick job but a sick boss like he's like I know I love it so I think all the trainers can probably say that we're all really grateful for our jobs here for sure but to continue you were talking just about how you continue to read and you continue to talk to your mentors and things um I remember during our interview you were telling me how much you value learning and always continuing it and I remember you were telling me that you wanted to learn something for me we talked about something I learned in business class can you talk to us maybe about the importance of continuing to learn and um, being coachable as a personal trainer and a business owner. Yeah. One of my mentors, not my, he's not my personal mentor, but he's sort of the father or grandfather of functional strength training. His name's Mike Boyle. And one of, well, the certification that all trainers have to get that work here is the certified functional strength coach. Mm-hmm. And that's from Mike Boyle. And one of the things I like about, how he because he is a provider of education and a consumer of education and and one of the things he does he comes out with these strength coach 1.0 you know he's up to like 8.0 he has these like used to be dvds now it's you know all (laughs) um, digital but he'll he'll state clearly from the beginning that hey this is what we think right now this is like the best case scenario this is the best program that we can come up with and, you know, and next year, if it's the same, then there's something wrong. We, we need to continue to evolve. 
at the same time, he's like, you have your big rocks, you know, you have your big movements and you don't take away those, but you can definitely optimize. And he, uh, for example, like one of the things he does with his athletes every week is make sure that they do some sprinting because <clears throat> there's nothing in the gym that mimics the rate of force production that you create when you're doing sprinting. Right. And there's not, you don't need any tools to do it. So, so that's one thing where I, I hope to continue to evolve like he does. And, and I honestly, like I have programs from back in 2004 when I started training and I look at them and it's just interesting to see the way that you organize programs then and now. Yeah. And even, you know, year to year, um, things change. And then you also, everything's adapted to the specific clients and what their goals are and stuff like that. And, you know, sometimes you're dictated by the machinery you have and things like that, but there's not really anything that I would want that I don't have right here. Um, so there's, there's that part of the education. And then, you know, I come from, um, educated family. Um, <clears throat> I actually have the least amount of degrees out of all of them. They all have either a master's or a PhD or both. Um, so that sort of instilled in me. And one of the things that I started doing when I was in high school and I was delivering pizzas was listening to audio books. Back then they were on cassette tapes. <laughs> and now I have an Audible account and I probably listen to 15 to 20 books a year. And then I also read a I read le a lot less books by hand, but I do, a, I do a, a wide range of books. Yeah. You know, like some are purely entertainment, like a David Sedaris book, or I'll try to listen to one of these like traction books or business books like that. Um, but honestly, like just learning about all these different things, um, helps when you're having conversations with clients. Um, I think it helps your brain when you're, you can get distracted and learn something from a completely different field. Yeah. Um, the other part of our continued education here, I mean, that's just sort of my personal thing. I'm yeah. obsessed with listening to books, um, <laughs> is, uh, we also have physical therapy upstairs from performance in motion and they have such a wide range of information available to us that's um, very specific um, and and at a much like higher level for stuff that's very specific like if you just want to talk about the hip or the knee or the shoulder and um, isolated movements and um, they, they do a really good job of educating us and we actually have we did it more in the past pre-covid but we'll have them sit down and do continue education course with us um, and then we also learn from each other and mm -hmm. that's a great way to do it. Um, we'll have presentations for one another. Um, and then we've also, we did a zoom recently yeah, with sure an did. expert. Um, and we continue to do that and bring people in. And we also, hopefully we we'll get back to it soon. We were hosting a lot of certifications here and that helped because, um, everybody, we would all get that extra certification and then we would, could all talk about it and um, kind of hone in on it and, and add it into our programs and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's super important. And I do, I always hear to autumn. I'm always trying to get information from autumn. <laughs> um, so 
Autumn and Jacob, they're really good up there for sure. Okay, I wanted to make sure I talked about your avid bicycling because it continues to blow my mind. Um, small story time. It was one day, it was more toward the summer. Um, Aaron goes, hey, I'll be back. I said, all right, Aaron, I'll see you when I see you. <laughs> he, he's like, I'm going to go bike. I'm like, all right, cool. He comes back like two hours later, what it feels like. And I'm like, all right, how far was, how far did you bike? You know, like 30 miles. <laughs> And I remember looking at him in pure shock. Um, I never heard of anything like that before. He basically drove or biked to my house. And I was like, or like back to my mom's house in like the suburbs. Aaron, why? That's my only question. <laughs> when I stopped playing rugby, um, I needed something else to do. And um, my knees, I've had seven knee surgeries. Right from rugby and actually when I when I first stopped playing rugby I would have a hard time straightening my legs out mm. when I would stand up after sitting down for a little while and it took about six months to 12 months for that to go away I had what's called bone edema normally edema is just a uh, swelling on the surface that you can like push into it's it's kind of like jello almost but a harder and um, this was on the bone surfaces itself. And so my knees were really irritated. And uh, I have bone-on-bone -bone arthritis. And mm -hmm. I don't have any lateral meniscus on either side of my knee. And so I needed something that was kind of healthy for my knees. And when I was a kid, I rode my BMX bike everywhere. Oh. I mean, everywhere. I lived in Bethesda, Maryland. I would ride my bike to the mall. It must have been like 20 miles away. And on a BMX bike, that's, that's saying something. Right. Um, and then when I moved to Asheville, I rode my BMX bike everywhere. So I had that history. I mean, like all my life from yeah. the age of four, I was riding two wheels, um, everywhere all the time. And so, um, I just, I, and I got away from that when I was doing rugby, although I did bring my bike to Scotland, I did not ride a bike in Spain. Hmm. Um, and I don't think I rode one much in New Zealand, but, um, I got back into it. And, um, it was great. It really helped my knees. Um, and I would bike to work and I just loved it. I really like mountain biking too. I did some of that in Asheville wow. and, and honestly, I just needed something else to like get that sensation that you get from working out really hard. Uh, rugby practice, if you can survive it is, is one <laughs> of the, is, is actually like just based on my research is some of the best training in the world. Mm. And so I felt actually really lucky that I was able to do that two, three, and sometimes five times a week. You know, you think about endurance, changes direction, strength, um, physicality of it, the wrestling part of it, the tackling. I mean, there's really no stone unturned in that, in that realm. And so like, I feel, I read this book, uh, Natural Born Heroes, which is um, um, McDougal book. It's the same guy that wrote Born to Run. Okay. It was the next book. Um, and it talks about sort of the hierarchy and the evolution of training and plyometrics and stuff like that. And so thinking about that book and thinking about rugby, I was like, yeah, just so lucky to have that in my life. And, and my knees are actually doing a lot better now. Good. And, um, yeah, I just today actually just a few minutes ago just got to my 2000 mile goal for the year wow that's indoor and outdoor so we'll see i, I really like to go on some big bike trips next year if that's possible um i have a one-year-old at home 
so things are starting to stabilize. Um, maybe yeah. I have some time. Um, I really like to, yeah, go out there and do something. Yeah, I'm sure Abby or Joey can do that. Not Destiny, but <laughs> I'll support from the side. I'll be the Instagram manager for that. I'll, I'll record it for you. Sounds great. Awesome. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron, for your time today. It was awesome talking to you, getting to know your story. Um, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to episode three. Aaron, where can the people find you? Uh, my Instagram is a manheimer. Perfect. You guys can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at wattagept. And until next time, ciao. Ciao. <laughs> I put that one in for Aaron because he never says bye. He says ciao. <laughs>